Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for tuning in to Triple R. We've got an hour of science ahead for you, some great guests coming into the studio. A big thanks also to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 um, in the studio with me right now. It's Dr. Jean. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I feel like I'm in trouble when you call me madam. What have I done wrong? I've, I've done nothing, Your Honour. I've just woken up and it's a Dragged glorious day. In. Yeah, it's, oh. yeah, it was raining a bit, but uh, generally a pretty nice day. I, barbecue, oh, I barbecued last night. It's spring. Oh, I've been out running in the sunshine this morning. It was gorgeous. Are you trying to make me feel lazy? You bet. Hey, I swam 10, la- 10 laps I yesterday. Saw and-, <laughs> and today I'm feeling... A little bit like I swam too much yesterday. Yeah, I yeah. saw that on uh, on Twitter and thought, good on you. Yeah, trying to get back into the, you know, the post-COVID, can I still do it phase? Yep. I think a lot of people are going through. Mm-hmm. Wait of the while, but, uh, <laughs> slowly but surely getting back into it. But uh, realising that, you know, I was never that good at it to start with. So well, the only help. way is up then, Shane. Yeah, I can so. only get better. Yeah, every now and then one of my kids gets in at the same time and so that then I feel really like like I've got a problem. Well, so. you did have a birthday this week, Dr. Shane. Happy birthday. You're well, thanks entitled for that. to slow down a bit. It's all good. Yeah. Look, 38 <laughs> hit you. Hit you hard. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought it was 39. <laughs> yeah, no, that's how long I've been doing the show. Uh, anyway, we have a guest in the studio with us already. We've sort of swung it around the other way this uh, week. We're going to do news at the end, me and Jen, and uh, interview all of our guests first. But up front, we have Dr. Kevin Rowe. Kevin is a senior creator of Mammals at Museums Victoria. Welcome to Triple R. Uh, good morning, Shane. Good morning, Jenny. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in that. This is not your first time at AAA. You've been here before. I've been here before, uh, boosting discovery of some rats, I think, but that's it's been a few years. Yeah, it's interesting at the moment. I, I think you guys just did a, a big event this week, is that right? Yeah, we had our Future Forums, which is a monthly event at the museum where we get thought leaders in various topics. Uh, we, this week we were talking about reversing extinction uh, mm-hmm. with Andy Pask of the Tiger Lab, who's principally involved in attempting to bring back the thylacine. And we had Myrene Belisi, who's um, a paleontologist from California, who's been working on La Brea tar pits to talk about the ecological changes over the last uh, 50,000 years. Yeah. Um, now, we had, we had Andrew on three or four months ago, I think, a little while back, talking about his work. Because, you know, it's it's amazing stuff he's doing there. One of the things I wanted to explore with you, Kevin, though, is the the role that the museum plays. Because I think a lot of people have the wrong impression that the museum is just this static storage house of old stuff. But, you know, you're part of the research team there. There's a lot of research going on. What, What is the role of the museum in programs like the Thylacine Revival and so forth? Well, we are a storage house of old stuff, but uh, we're certainly not <laughs> static in how we store it. Um, and and in this instance, specifically, it's the a, a Pouchung thylacine from 1909 uh, that was stored in ethanol uh, and then kept w- maintained for the last 113 years that mm. principally led to the first genome of thylacine. And that even that alone is not a static process. You can't just put ethanol in a specimen in a jar and expect it to stay ethanol because ethanol evaporates even through the yeah. best jars. And so for 113 years, MV has been topping up that ethanol, keeping that <laughs> specimen safe. And it turns out it's actually got the most intact genome or DNA of any thylacine specimen that 
has yet been attempted that's, on Earth. That's wild. I, I, so is, is, there a, is there a roster? I want to know how this works. There's the, <laughs> the top-up requirements of the thylacine jar. Is there a roster for this, or is one person in charge? Well, uh, it's hard to roster when you have 17 million objects that are all getting that kind of attention. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah we right. have quite a big team. We have uh, a big collection management team. We also have a conservation department that uh, looks at best practices on how to conserve specimens, uh, constantly updating our practices. We just won a big award for our uh, museum practices around hazardous substances. So um, right. that's been a big initiative over the last 10 years because many of our specimens contain material that can be uh, of risk to the specimens and of to the staff at the museum, and we're one of the thought leaders in, in that space. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. I, I know the museum is really doing some interesting stuff in, in that sort of area at the moment. I, I went to an exhibit probably a year ago or so now, and it was the one that was built out of all the recycled boxes. And I thought, wow, this is not something I'd seen before. And, you know, I, I suppose that's becoming the norm to start to think about this stuff. Yeah, everything we're trying to do is uh, increasingly sustainable and trying to um, reduce the impacts of having these exhibitions. But uh, mm. we're trying to get the message out about nature and culture and um, and first people's issues. And yeah. Um, Hopefully you come and see our fantastic new exhibits. There's a lot of dynamic things happening on the front of house. As you know, we have the world's most complete Triceratops now yeah, on display. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. I'm freaking oh, out. Like it's pretty <laughs> unbelievable just walk yeah. in there. Every time I take somebody in there, I can't believe how much of it is, how complete it is, and what just a space to stare at. You know, life uh, 65 million years old and uh, yeah. and what it means for uh, – what extinction means for us and what um, the con- continuity of life means for us. And, and where is the Triceratops? Is it in the old – what I used to call the stuffed animal room? Is yeah, it- it's, in, it's in wild. So unfortunately <laughs> it did, re- did replace about 700 species that were on display there uh, with one species. But, yep. uh, a good one though. Yeah, yeah. We, are, we are working to bring that back. We have a new exhibition in development that emphasizes the dynamic work we do um, as part of the Museum Victoria Research Institute, which uh, we just founded this year and we yep. announced this year, the MVRI. Uh, and that will highlight the kind of dynamic work we do with collections and also bring back a lot of those taxidermy specimens that people because mm, really everyone miss. loved them. I mean, I just remember so often standing there with my kids, and you could just spend hours looking around the room and oh, look at that one. And then you'd go to the display and work out what it was. And I mean, I, I can't um, bemoan the fact that there's now an incredible triceratops to look at, but I do think bringing some of those back would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, museums were principally about the diversity of life on yeah. Earth, and right now we've got. About names on about 2 million species, every one of which has a specimen held in a museum collection to document that name. Uh, and we have uh, you know, many thousands of species in the MV collection. And it's hard for people to get their heads around how much life there is on this planet. And yeah. um, that's what we're, we're about. Yeah. It's incredible. I remember probably long, long-term listeners of the show may remember 25 years ago me saying, hey, can you put some more geology specimens on display? Because it used to be the single, what I called the Maya window display, and now you guys have got, and I'm not sure because of me complaining, it's probably you're just that you guys have amazing you know, curators doing the work, but now there's that incredible walkthrough of, of rock samples and so forth, which yeah, is dynam- wild. Dynamic Earth exhibit. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's amazing. And do you get a lot of people sort of you know, coming through the museum or ringing up the museum and saying, hey, you know, we need some more funnel webs. Yeah, there's not a lot of funnel webs on display. <laughs> Is there that kind of push from the public? 
There is some push from the public. I don't get the funnel web requests. They don't funnel to me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, solid gold right there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I get the rat requests, which you know, mostly, can, you know, is this a black rat? Can I get rid of it? Uh, so, yeah, and there's not a lot of demand for that. People aren't saying show us more rats. But, uh, yeah, I think we could. there's a lot of fascinating stuff we're learning from rats, including extinct species of rats uh, that align with what we're talking about, the thylacine, that hopefully get mm. people to realize how – interesting rats are for understanding life yeah. they are the most diverse uh family of mammals and they are the most you know rodents are the most diverse order of mammals so if you want to understand mammals you principally need to study rats cool i uh, love uh, love a good rat story um in terms of things like the thylacine and bringing back some of these extinct species i, I, I suppose there's a there's a couple of elements to this. There is a group of species that we have literally caused the more recent extinction to, and the thylacine is a good example of that. Then there's things like the megafauna, which, you know, extinction caused by a variety of factors. And then we go way back, you know, to, as you say, things like the the, um, the dinosaurs and so forth, where there aren't DNA fragments that are, you know, proficient enough for us to do anything with. But, I mean, what's your feeling in terms of how we approach this? Because, you know, bringing something back like a thylacine, which is an apex predator, into a, an ecosystem that has, you know, evolved since, you know, when I say evolved, I mean changed, not evolved, <laughs> um, you know, since, you know, the you know, century ago um, is a pretty big issue. I mean, what, what's your feeling on that? Well, a lot of my research in museum collections is about using those collections going back, spanning the last three centuries, trying to infer uh, the impacts of, of anthropogenic expansion of human globalization on the loft species. So mm. um, I... Before coming here, I worked at the University of California, Berkeley, and we worked on impact of climate change on species. So the first director of the museum there in the early 20th century went out and was surveying the mountains of California um, and leaving a record that he realized would be of use a century later. And mm. that's principally what I got to do as a postdoctoral fellow before coming here was go to those mountains, resurvey the exact same localities. Um, that involved nearly 30,000 specimens um, collected in the early part of the 20th century and then revisited in the early part of the 21st mm. century. And they revealed a dramatic impact of a century of climate change, change already observed, species shifting upslope, collapsing their range, yep. uh, but there are more complexities to it. Uh, my work here is also focused on uh, how species uh, genetic diversity is lost. So last year we published a paper including eight species of extinct Australian rodents, native rodents of Australia. Uh, there are at least 12 species gone extinct uh, since European colonization. Mm. Uh, and we were able to sequence uh, genome scale data from those specimens back to 1837. Uh, one of those species was a, uh, a, ro a rodent thought to be extinct. It was first collected by, on the HMS Beagle Expedition, by the Darwin Expedition to Australia in 1837, last collected by the Museum of Victoria in 1857, and then thought to not ever be seen again. Mm -hmm. uh, and the genetic data revealed that it actually survived extinction, but on a single island off Western Australia and was known by the name Pseudomys fieldi. Uh, and this, um, so they hadn't gone extinct, but it represented a continental collapse from New yeah. South Wales all the way across the continent. And revealed a massive loss of genetic diversity. Yeah. So mm. the thylacine, I'm coming back to that, mm, yeah. <laughs> is principally about that, this loss of genetic diversity. It is an effect of European colonization uh, and the dramatic loss of genetic diversity and biodiversity that's come with that. Uh, and the museum record reveals the extent to that even in living species. Right. Uh, and I'm interested in trying to recover some of that. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, I think, you know, 
hearing about the fact that these well-cared-for museum specimens can give us access to information that would otherwise be completely lost is just phenomenal and something we should be so proud of that, that happens. But I think one of the things that comes up so often when we talk about potentially, you know, all of this amazing genome data, on the one hand it's incredible because it gives us insight into something that otherwise is completely lost, but of course many people say, but hang on, why are we investing money in trying to bring back one or two long-gone species when actually there's so many at-risk species that we should be looking after. Uh, I've got my own thoughts on that, but I'd love to hear yours. Well, I mean, I think the amount that we invest in in wildlife and, and nature in, in total is pretty small, and we could do oh, a lot better there. Beautiful, <laughs> yeah. absolutely beautiful. Um, we're spending a lot, most of our money on one species uh, ourselves, uh, and mm-hmm. mostly on our health and entertainment. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think what we what i think the thylacine does is it inspires a lot of engagement that is generating new new investment in in genetic technologies um and i also think that we are you know a big enough civilization uh and i'm paraphrasing this from a paleontologist who said it the other night uh, that we're a big enough civilization to um afford multiple uh strategies to try to solve these problems so you know wildlife is not going to be solved just by genetics it's not a uh, either or we need uh, wildlife monitoring on the ground uh we need to change the way we live but we're not doing that mm-hmm. we're not we're not stopping to cut clear-cut old growth forests so we're not stopping to consume at massive rates that are unsustainable uh and museums are a reflection of we've already seen that impact over the last century but we're also gearing up to preserve something for the next century. And that's a big part of our new initiatives is try to preserve something that's more valuable uh, for the next century. I think the the diversity of understanding of various species too, you just gave an example of a rodent that we thought was extinct and the fact that the museum maintained that catalogue of information enabled you to determine that it wasn't, you know, and that, and that we learn a lot from that. So, you know, if we just pick one thing and just focus on one thing, that's problematic. And I think it's, I always find it interesting when we find, Various parts of science almost eating each other alive over funding when really the enemy is is not the science it 's the, the the funding agencies that are, are not appropriately resourced to to deliver you know and and so i I always struggle when I hear about oh we shouldn 't do this, we should do that and so like well actually let 's all just focus on the fact that let's the government 's not all. funding this properly and do <laughs> yeah. all these things for actually relatively low cost, and you know they 're not you know we 've seen the announcements over the last week or so with regards to the investment in threatened species, which is, seems pretty piecemeal to me. I'm a physics guy, but when I look at it, I think this doesn't sound like enough money to take care of the problem. Oh, I mean, as soon as we look at the amount of money that's spent on other things, and as you've said, Kevin, largely we're just into looking after ourselves, but we know all of the analyses that have been done comparing, for example, the defence budget with mm. the biodiversity conservation budget, and it, you know, it just makes me, it makes me and everyone that I talk to so, so angry. It's just crazy. So with, with the museums, I mean, just to, to finish up, I mean, the, the, the museums have a continuing role here in terms of, you know, cataloguing and, and collecting and correctly storing many species. I mean, how, how is it that you can take care of so many and how do you make those choices? Because presumably there's going to be a whole lot you have to say, look, we just can't cater for that one as well. 
Um, well, we, 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 ha- we have a fantastic funding model that keeps us going, and we're putting on fantastic exhibits that get the public interested. Mm. And, and then we use that money to invest in conserving the 17 million objects we have in the collections right. that span centuries and, and into the paleo record. Uh, and we have, we have amazing teams working on our databases, on our collections, uh, to make sure those objects are best preserved. We do have a deaccessioning program, which we do can decide that this specimen is not worth the investment. Right. Um, but we're also investing in new ways to preserve things. So one of our newest initiatives is the living biobank. So we have a liquid nitrogen facility in which we store our tissue samples, uh, and that's a facility uh, in which you can store uh, living material. So you can, you can store uh, sperm and egg cells, which we're starting to do in partnership with Zoos Victoria. Uh, mm-hmm. And also you can store living cells from the animals we collect now. So a standard way that we get DNA samples from an animal like a mouse or a rat that we study, like the smoky mouse, an endangered species of, of rodent uh, that we study in Victoria, uh, is to collect a small ear biopsy, just a little snip off the top of the ear. Uh, and that's the material that now with uh, similar technologies that are being applied to the thylacine, we can preserve living cells frozen in a, a state of animation. Uh, and, yeah. and then can 100 years from now, instead of dealing with a pouch young and ethanol, we'll have the actual living genetic material, living cells that you can Wild stuff. Yeah. And just just to finish up, um, what percentage, I'm not sure if you can whack a ballpark number on this, but what percentage of the museum and its infrastructure does the public see? Because I have this image of these catacombs of storage facilities <laughs> underneath the building. How, how, much, how much is accessible to the public? At any one time, it's far less than 1%. Wow. But that's... You know, the other 99% are helping us address uh, key questions in yeah. society, but also fueling the way we decide which specimens to put on display. And what's on display is constantly dynamic. We have lots of new exhibitions mm. coming out. Our Gondwana Garden uh, exhibitions coming out soon. I mentioned the Research Institute exhibition. Uh, we have constantly new, new things on offer uh, because we have that rich record, uh, both for uh, the public to see and for research of public value. Yeah, that's great stuff. I have to say, one of the genius uh, things in the mu- Melbourne Museum, I think, is that rainforest garden in the middle. Because mm. for parents, when you get to that point where the kids are just just <laughs> stressing you out, you, you wander in there and everything just becomes calm and, and nice. It's a it's a great exhibit. Yeah, it's the I... largest aviary in the Southern Hemisphere, I believe. And you know, our our new male bowerbird is uh, working really hard on his bower. It's great to come see <laughs> I was that. Going to say that's, <laughs> that's really my funny. favorite part of it. He's always going to find the bower and what latest yeah, tools. Uh, uh, fantastic stuff, Kevin. Thanks so much for coming on the show and um, joining us in Triple R once again. Good luck with the ongoing work that Melbourne Museum I know it's it's really important that people are aware of just how much more the museum does and its role in conservation than than what they probably see just on the you know on the on the front front of the building and in the displays so. yeah it's a fantastic dynamic place a dynamic place uh, thanks for having me you're very welcome folks we're going to take a break for some uh, important station announcements and we'll be back with our second guest from RMIT in just a few minutes you're listening to a triple R podcast Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein at GoGo. It's uh, it's about eleven twenty-two. We've got plenty of time, Jen. Uh, uh, look, I love having guests in the studio, Shane, because <sighs> there's just so many cool people doing cool things. It's wild stuff. And uh, someone who I've been backing forthing on Twitter and stuff for <laughs> ages, and who knows another 
colleague, anyway, it's uh, Dr. Saffron Bryant is a lecturer and research fellow at RMIT University. Saffron, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in the studio. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but first of all, let's talk a little bit about your research work because mm-hmm. uh, I think this comes nicely off the back of what we were just yeah, talking about with Kevin from Melbourne Museum, cryopreservation. Yeah. Can I freeze myself yet? Uh, no. <laughs> No, no matter what companies offer you, don't pay the $40,000. You can't do it. Oh, is this happening? Can people, people doing this? Com- companies are offering that service. Um, don't want to be sued, but yeah, I wouldn't do it if I were you. <laughs> only only 40000 for a failed service. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're super rich, right? I mean, you know, that's a trinket. Well, but they for... should be sending that money to Museums Victoria yeah. to preserve all the species. <laughs> or using those same cryopreservation <laughs> yeah, facilities yeah. to preserve the species free of charge. Exactly. Um, why is that? Why can't we freeze a body? I've seen it in the films. Yeah, yeah, that's true, and you should always believe television. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, No, so when, when we freeze something, we have to add a cryoprotective agent. So this is something that protects the biological material from you know forming ice crystals and being mm. killed. Mm. Um, but when you get to, to bigger items like a whole body, for example, you've got lots of different cell types. You've got issues with the cryoprotectant trying to get into deeper cell layers. You've got different requirements of different cells. And so we just don't have the technology at the moment to freeze something that complex so i think one of my kids was asking me this the other day and i gave what was i think a pretty good explanation um which <laughs> I, I think saffron's going to be the judge I, of this is exactly <laughs> what i'm hoping for Jen. but I, I said you know one of the things we know is that um ice is less dense than water so everyone knows that if well hopefully everyone knows that if you put an ice block in a glass of water it will float it floats because it's less dense mm-hmm. and you know this is kind of a, a good thing for uh, any ice on the oceans because it means if that melts the ocean level won't rise mm-hmm. our problem of course is that most of the ice we're worried about is on land masses so you know different thing but the fact that that happens i mean what happens in an individual cell where there are fluids is it the same problem as that expansion like imagine the cell then just can't survive right yeah you definitely you get physical disruption from a change in volume the other aspect is as water is being removed into ice you get less and less liquid water and so the salts and sugars that are sitting inside the cell become more and more concentrated in the water that remains so they become toxic eventually as well Mm. ah right i hadn't Mm. thought about that that sounds bad yes (laughs) well i'm not going to get myself frozen yet i'm going to wait until i'm gone <laughs> so to speak or wait till the technology's improved and it's going to work yeah you'll have now, now you work on ways in which you can sort of do this sort of extensive um cryopreservation mm-hmm. of cells tell us about um what you're involved with there yeah so my research focuses on finding new cryoprotectants so as i mentioned you have to add this sort of antifreeze agent which is like the green stuff that you put in your car yep. um and for the last 50 years we've largely relied on the same two cryoprotectants and they just don't work for many cell types and they're also quite toxic so they're one is dimethyl sulfoxide, which um, is quite, quite quite toxic to mammalian cells. So my research focuses on finding new cryoprotectants mm. with the goal of finding one that's less toxic but also that works for new cell types so that maybe we can store cells that we can't currently store. Um, and relating to your, your previous story there, a lot of plants and things are quite hard to store right. and some species as well. So the idea being if we can find a new cryoprotectant, maybe we can store these new species or new cells. It's interesting. Do you walk into the supermarket and... Are you one of these people who knows that the frozen peas aren't as good as the real peas? Or is, or is, that, is that a myth? Like- um, I think you always have this issue, and, and it's exactly like you were talking about with that water expansion, in that you get a change to the cellular structure when things have been frozen. And that's, yeah. that's why you get freezer burn and you get you know, things that right. have been frozen quite often don't taste the same. Yeah, but nutritionally, we know that frozen peas are actually better. 
than fresh peas. Yeah, I, I remember hearing some of this. Yeah, because they're... they've been snap frozen when they're still at their most nutritious because they've just been picked as opposed to what we buy on the shelf fresh that right. have been sitting there for potentially weeks and weeks. Yeah, Dr so. Jen has no affiliation to any supermarkets <laughs> or frozen vegetable right, companies. But I remember being really shocked because, you know, you think frozen peas, you're kind of like, ew, squishy. But then when a nutritionist told me, oh, no, they're actually quite good for you, I was shocked. So I had to read up to make sure mm. that I was being told the truth. <laughs> <laughs> as you do, as you do. And in terms of the, like, the freezing, pro- I mean, there's the chemicals, mm. but the process itself, I mean, in terms of timing, in mm. terms of what state the cells are in when you begin, like, mm. what, what's, what about all those, those features? Yeah, I mean, so there is some variation depending on what you're freezing, but really the, the process in, in my sort of lab setting is quite simple. You add the, the cryoprotectant. Um, for my ones, we actually pre-incubate for a period of time. Then you just throw it in a freezer, so we have a minus 80 freezer, um, and the cooling rate, it changes, but it's about one degree a minute, so, you know, however many minutes that is to get down to, to minus 80 degrees. Um, and then quite often for longer-term storage, we then put it into liquid nitrogen, so you get down to about minus 150. Wow. Yeah. And and is there a difference in the sort of damage potentially done at various ranges of temperature? So, like, I, I suppose what I'm asking is, is most of the damage done that you're trying to prevent between like zero and minus 10 or is it when you go into those real ultra cold settings? No, you've, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. So the sort of danger zone is those upper cold temperatures because that's when you get ice formation. That's when you get right. sort of changes to the phase of the water and, and the physical changes happening. Whereas um, once you get to super cooling, that's when you get glass formation. So this is like a amorphous, not crystalline water state and that's sort of where everything stops. So And once you get down to minus 150 nothing's happening so that's when you're sort of in that suspended animation so that's when you're, you're safe so to yeah, speak that's where i want to be so so shame we started by talking about you know preserving your whole body which is clearly mm. very appealing but saffron i'm really interested to know how important is this stuff for things like organ transplant is that is that the sort of immediate application that some of this work might have um yes yeah, so, i mean i hesitate to use immediate um but we are trying yeah. to uh store new cell types with the ultimate future goal being organ preservation basically if we could preserve organs we could completely eliminate waiting lists so um that's sort of the the golden sort of statue at the end of the tunnel but it's it's years decades away unfortunately it's not you shane you're not the golden statue (laughs) (laughs) and uh, because earlier actually for those listening to radiotherapy they were talking about organ um transplants as well and they uh, apparently flush through a preservative as well Mm -hmm. and presumably all of these chemicals have to be such that they don't cause problems when they start to freeze yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so I guess currently with the organs, they quite often have a preservative and then they're sort of kept at refrigeration sort of temperatures, which mm. allows you a few hours storage. Um, with cryo, you you could get down to indefinite sort of right. time periods if you can get to that minus 150. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, fascinating stuff. Now, the other thing I wanted to uh, discuss with you is your work in sort of graphic art, really. This mm-hmm. is something that you don't see a lot of scientists doing. But um, And this is how I, I first noticed you on, online was that mm-hmm. you were doing these amazing pieces of graphic art to represent science, in particular science on the scale that humans can't see, on the mm-hmm. nanoscale. So we often, you know, I mean, this is a radio show, so we, we can't do this justice. <laughs> But we we hear people give explanations about these things, but being 
being able to see them is very different. How did you get into that space of doing these amazing, and I should say to our listeners, these aren't like the sort of drawings you'll find in my thesis and probably not Jen's. <laughs> these are the sorts of things that end up on front covers of yes, journals stunning. because they are stunning three-dimensional you know, digital representations of certain chemicals, processes, whatever. I mean, how, how did you get into doing that? Um, I've always loved art. So, you know, I've always had my split personality of my, my science and my, my art side. Um, so I've, I've always done painting and, and graphics and things. And the last few years I got more into the three-dimensional graphic space. And, mm. um, yeah, um, a friend of mine was like, oh, can you design us a graphic for a cover? And I was like, sure. It <laughs> <laughs> worked out very well. And that's yeah. sort of just gone on from there. Yeah. 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 And because there's a, there's a big element of responsibility here, isn't there? Because I mean, the one thing we know when we, you know, you mentioned television and that before in the movies is as often there is a representation of things that allows them to be communicated easier, but is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're in that space because these are journal articles mm-hmm. where you have to, it has to be communicated easily, but it has to be right. I mean, yep. that must bring up some different challenges it's definitely challenging i think you very much have to be selective about what you choose to show that that's true and what is um just a, a graphical illustration of mm. something so i i designed one recently it hasn't um, been published yet but it was sort of a protein complex destroying bacteria and so i had it you know sort of physically eating sort of the bacteria and chewing into it and bits right. of bacteria flying everywhere that's probably not truly what's happening but it <laughs> yeah. makes a good graphical representation of it yeah i think it's a good mix and how long so if, if jim was to sort of request a um i don't know what would it be jen a a, a kangaroo cell being uh, cooked in the somewhere in the Nullarbor. Um, I mean, how, how long would it take to to put something like that together? Because I mean, when I when I look at your graphics, and I think for me to draw something about one percent as good as that would take me, I don't know, two three years. Um, That's very intricate. Yeah, how, how long does it take to put one of these cover sort of graphics together? Um, so I won't take all the credit. I mean, the the sort of technology that's available now for three D three D graphics is just phenomenal. Um, but you know, it depends on the complexity, how many elements. The one I mentioned, where you've got one element sort of chewing into another yep. and, and bits flying. I mean, it does take hours and hours. Um, so yep. yeah, it, it does depend on the complexity, um, but. Yeah, there's free software, Plug Blender here, um, which is, is free software, and it, it um, takes a lot of the heavy lifting, so you don't have to draw each right. individual hair, for example, on the bacteria, which yeah. saves think, a lot of time. I think that was the thing. Like, it, There's a difference between you being an artist and a computer programmer, mm. and you're, you're an artist, right? Yes. Um, as opposed yeah. to it, but there's good support services. There's definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just before we go, you, you've been right, I mean, you know, in your spare time, because these, yeah. these two things don't take up all of it, um, you've been, you're an author, too. You've got several <laughs> I am, books. yes. Uh, what are the books? Are they sciencey books? I haven't read them. Yeah, so there's science fiction and fantasy novels that okay. I write, um, as you say, in my spare time. Um, so <laughs> the triple, triple personality split that I've got going on there. Um, hey, it's a whole new triple threat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I published my first one 11 years ago wow. now. Um, so I think there's just over 30 books now. 30 books? And I think, wow. I mean, you know, sitting aside here for a second, I think, you know, this explains why one of Saffron's real incredible skills is such a brilliant science communicator. I first met Saffron uh, when she was taking part in Fame Lab and absolutely right. nailed it in Fame yeah. Lab. You know, being an artist, being a storyteller and being a scientist, those three things come together to mean that you can absolutely enthrall people in accurate tales of the science that you do. I mean, I just absolutely love it. That, you know, it really is a triple threat, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> what she's trying to say, she make people like me and Jen, it's kind of redundant. <laughs> 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 Shane, I know, I know. 
Well, look, uh, Severin, it's great having you in. I think for, for any scientists out there listening, and I think there are three. Um, <laughs> Thousands. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, this, this is something where I think the – I'm noticing more and more. I do a lot of grant reviews where mm-hmm. I help people write grants. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I've noticed is that there is this almost war scenario going on between graphical um, or graphical representation of mm-hmm. science in grant applications and everything. And there is an expectation that this will be done really well. And I think, you know, for people out there who, like me, would be, you know, frankly, farting around with PowerPoint, um, it, it really is worth getting someone who, who knows how to do this well um, mm-hmm. to do it. So uh, Google Saffron Bryant and you will um, find uh, our guest today who can do some amazing stuff. And, and you're on Twitter. They can they can yeah. find you yeah. pretty easily. Pretty Googleable. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, good luck with that cryo stuff. Uh, Jen and I will need it within probably uh, <laughs> a couple of decades. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Sooner the better, we say. Um, I prefer to be uh, cryoed overnight, actually so they just don't oh. age as fast. Hmm. Just sort that one out. I'll please. work that out, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let us know when it's yeah. already. Give me a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Great talking to you, Stefan. Thanks so much for coming in. No worries. Thanks for having me. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to be talking with our third guest from Deakin University and it's all about screen time. Prepare yourself, parents. Uh-oh. You're going to feel bad. Uh, here's some music to <laughs> lull you into a false sense of security. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gecko. In the studio with myself and Dr. Jen now is Dr. Lauren Arundel from the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition, IPAN, at the School of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences at Deakin University. Lauren, thanks so much for coming into Triple R. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in here. Uh, I think we're going to talk about a difficult topic. Jen and I are already uncomfortable. <laughs> you work in the space of children's physical activity and sedentary behaviour. Um, look, help. First of all, let's just talk about sedentary behaviour. I mean, how how big an issue is that in terms of kids? Because I think when we were kids, we were running around a lot. Mm, absolutely. Has that changed a lot? Yeah, it absolutely has. And the evidence is showing more and more that we're sitting more and it's really not great for our health. So we're yeah. really wanting to, first of all, not sit for long periods but also have those interruptions because that's really important for the way our body works and everything that's going on um, inside. So the sedentary behaviours are those behaviours that require very little energy expended to do typically done sitting or lying but you know kids can spend up to 75 percent of their school day sitting sitting so and then often when they come home there's more sitting on top of that and a lot of that particularly in the home environment is in front of a screen so that's where the screen time um, and the sedentary behavior are really interlinked i did an interview i want to say 30 years ago. Oh, no, it was a while back um, with someone from the Baker Heart Institute yep. um, back when I think it had a different name, actually. And we talked about the idea that sedentary behaviour during the day was not compensated for by going to the gym at night. Is that yep. still the thinking that, you know, the damage done in one sense is not just undone in the other way? Yeah, it is. Um, so there's sort of two ways of thinking about our activity across the day. There's this prolonged periods of sitting or what we call breakers where people yep. do interrupt their sitting. And so that's really important because you aren't just necessarily going to flick a switch and, and meet the physical activity guidelines and say, yep, done, active, mm. um, healthy today, but I've spent the entire rest of the day sitting. sitting. And yep. there's also not enough time to compensate if you're spending eight hours Sitting God, in the day. It's so not. frustrating. I just want to believe that if I've been out running in the morning, it doesn't matter that I spend the rest of my day on the, the computer. The morning run is still really, really beneficial. So don't think you're doing anything bad by doing that. There's definitely a 
improvements in health for that. So. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Now, we've, we've just gone through this, you know, I think most people will be aware of this pandemic. Um, <laughs> we've gone through. And, you know, if if parents are out there or, you know, family members or carers, uh, anything like me and Jen, uh, we may have used screens somewhat to take care of our kids uh, while we were home working. What are you seeing in terms of the impacts of that? I mean, obviously, it's different to what we've been used to. Absolutely. And hands up, I'm guilty of the same thing. So it's definitely not a, a them and us type situation. So what we saw during lockdown was screen time went through the roof. Mm. And of course it was needed because our whole worlds went online. So particularly yep. for kids, their screen time increased and particularly for the primary school age kids. And that's probably because they weren't using screens quite as much as potentially the adolescents mm. before lockdown. But we've seen increases in screen time for educational purposes. Of course, that makes sense. School went online, but also for connecting with others. So mm. connecting with friends and family. And there wasn't actually much of a change in leisure time screen time. So that well, sort of TV okay. viewing computer for leisure and perhaps there just wasn't enough hours in the day they'd spent it all on the other screens um or perhaps they were looking for some kind of you know solace and the the relaxation came in other aspects of screen times as well so now that we've supposedly come on the other side of um the pandemic and particularly the lockdowns these huge changes we've had changes in exposure and experience and opportunity to use screens from the start of the day right to the end. We just don't want this to be normal. Now that the genie's mm. out of the bottle, we've got to kind of either manage it or squish it back in. It's so hard though, isn't it? Because I think about, so one of my kids is 11 and, you know, she doesn't necessarily have the autonomy that I'm like, yeah, you know, just walk around your friend's houses, come back whenever, you mm. know, like she's not quite that old enough that, that I would let her sort of have completely free reign in the neighbourhood. Yet during lockdown, she essentially had social free reign because she connected with, she was able to connect with any friend anytime. They didn't have to live in the next street. And it's hard hard to retract that I guess by saying no you can't stay in touch with that friend anymore because you can't Mm. walk the 5k to her house like I find yeah the genie's out of the bottle yeah it is it is very hard to to have that balance and we're finding more and more that screen time it's not all bad it's not all the same thing so screen Mm. time 15 years ago 20 years ago used to typically be tv viewing video games dvds I'm not sure anyone's got either of those anymore (laughs) but now when we talk about screen time it is it's digital tablet use because you're connecting with friends it's smartphone use you know doing a lot of different activities so what we need to manage now is very different to what was managed then but also when we look at the benefits or the detriment there are some benefits as well it's not all bad Mm -hmm. so we need to be conscious of what we're talking about when we're talking about screen time so the different devices and also the different activities that are done on the device and then the outcomes so we know for example educational screen time is important for academic outcomes we know that connecting socially can be good for social connectedness so it's not all doom and gloom we need to be conscious of that and it is the reality for kids today so is there a difference in the way kids react when we then retract screen time so I, I remember when you know my mum when we were kids me and my brothers and she'd say you know go outside and do something you know like as in get the hell out of the house go ride your bike play cricket whatever and I don't remember look if my mum's listening she'll probably go that's BS <laughs> I don't I don't remember us reacting badly to that yeah. instruction but I think with kids now you know when you, you're yanking them out of that screen time environment you know, there's almost a sense of entitlement that they should be able to continue with that. Are you seeing differences in that space as a result of the pandemic and the lockdowns? Absolutely. Parents are telling us it's, it's, it's a battleground, it can yeah. be a battleground at home. And there's a few reasons for this. So the screens that kids are using today, they're so 
interactive. They mm. are designed to keep your attention for as long as possible. It blew my mind when I learned that some of these platforms have attention engineers whose sole job is to keep the person engaged with that device. And so that's a really hard thing for a parent to then pull their child away from it. But it definitely does um, have, have caused problems within families. We had one parent call her child, the cyber demon comes out when she does try and take the screen away because they're so used to this quick, instant um, gratification. It's visually very engaging, the lights and sounds and everything's mm. moving very quickly. And also some of the games are designed so there's no natural pause yep. to mm. it. So a TV you can pause, um, but a lot of the games there isn't. And so you have to make that decision. The game is you know, dying or whatever. The game's coming to a natural conclusion if you stop you can't yeah, pause yeah. and come back it, to even it. even some of the games i've noticed there's a couple of my boys play where um there's a there's a time range you know like so you've got this much time for the match and then there's extended time and yeah, then there's yeah. extended extent and, the, and it keeps kind of dragging them back back in and you know if you it's that whole thing of sunk cost you know like they've they've invested seven minutes in that game dad we need another two minutes and like no no your time was up at five minutes yeah. but you know they they've got a reasonable argument with regards to their so that they're sunk time because then they lose their investment if they truncate it early but they as you say they're designed and engineered to to do that absolutely it's so hard for us as parents to to work against these devices and it is about a balance and so do recommend in terms of parents and having these conversations with the kids about allowances and about how much time is is appropriate to be spending on these so that they are across it before you then go and yank out the power cord behind them so one of the things i'm curious about because i remember you know when i was a kid we were told that if we watch too much television we would go blind and all these various Our things. brains would rot and, square eyes I had and that the one. reality is my knowledge of 80s films is exceptional and it has <laughs> it has paved my way through life and social conditions like unimaginably well and uh, you know, even yesterday i was i was telling my son that there was we were watching indiana jones in the last crusade first film our third film and there's a scene where you know uh, Harrison Ford's riding the horse and I said you know his hat kept coming off during filming and he had to staple gun it to his forehead and he's like what and then you know as kids today Google it 10 seconds later he's showing me the YouTube video you're right dad and I'm like that's the kind of information you can get from television <laughs> stored for 30 years now my question though is we didn't feel at the time as though it was doing any damage neurologically to our vision etc cetera, etc cetera. where do we stand now with things like you know devices tablets do we do we know do you want to know the answer? Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, we do. Unfortunately, more and more evidence is showing that it is detrimental immediately and there's longitudinal studies to show now that it's detrimental as a kid um, moving forward. So screen time um, is linked to poor physical health mm-hmm. and so it's not just, you know, overall risk of weight and obesity, poor bone and muscle development, but inflammation and associations with inflammation with cardiovascular disease and diabetes risk factors that used to be kind of old people conditions that we used to worry about not so much anymore but it's not just physical health and this is what parents are particularly concerned about is the risk to mental health and to social health so Mm. kids that are engaging in screens um, whether it's tv or different devices have greater risk of anxiety depressive symptoms lower well-being right Right. kids right down to age two wow um 
poorer social skills, um, less social connectedness and sleep, poorer sleep. I think screen time is the natural enemy of sleep. So they definitely, um, kids that are using screens have poorer sleep. And so this is not just immediate, but also there is some longitudinal data that's starting to come out. We do need to keep across this technology environment that's moving very, very rapidly. So we as researchers need to definitely try and keep across that as much as possible. Um, Mm. That's showing there. It's not good for their health. Now, Lauren, I've got to uh, play a couple of important station announcements. Do you want to hang around for a few minutes? Um, Because I think Jen's still got some more questions as well. Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of questions. And uh, we're (laughs) going to sort this out before the end of the hour (laughs) for all parents (laughs) who are listening. Uh, Be right back, folks. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, Welcome back, folks. We're speaking with Lauren Arundel, Dr. Lauren, actually I should say, uh, from Deakin University about screen time. Dr. Jean, you've been hitting the screen time hard with your kids. Oh, you know, what can you, what can you say? No, but Lauren, listening to you, it strikes me as a really important question to ask is how does homework fit with all this? Because, you know, we have kids who, as you've said, are spending a lot of their school day sitting. Like, obviously, they've got, you know, a recess break and a lunch break and you hope your kid's out playing sport or walking or whatever they do, but they spend a lot of their day sitting. And then we know that a lot of kids go home and have homework right at the time that we would really hope they wouldn't be sitting and they wouldn't be on screens. Mm. Do schools need to take some action on this and maybe cut back homework? Yeah, it's really interesting because... Particularly after the um, pandemic, what we've seen is that I've, a lot of schooling went online and there are some efficiencies with that that the schools have continued with. So we've got primary school kids who are still doing homework, which a couple of years ago wouldn't have been done online, but mm. it is now. So that's their normal, which is um, mm. a little bit of a worry that they've started that at such young age. So there's definitely an opportunity for schools and for teachers to still have homework, which has got the academic outcomes but it's not requiring a screen. And um, there's lots of programs actually that schools can engage with to incorporate movement throughout the day for kids and to incorporate movement and reduce the reliance on screen for homework. And so the task might be, the homework task might be to go for a walk out in the neighbourhood and Mm. collect pieces of information or whatever the topic was because you don't need to sit on a screen to have that educational outcome, Mm -hmm. particularly after having a full day of school. absolutely. So we don't want to say, I'm not going to enter into argument whether homework is needed or not, but if it is delivered, it definitely doesn't need to be on a screen, particularly for the young ones. Yeah, I think think that's reasonable. I'm quite happy, you know, my my primary school son's school has reverted back to, you know, sending home bits of paper in the book, you know, which is great. You know, I'm, I'm happy to see that. Now, We've scared the crap out of everyone, you know, freaking people out. But I mean, what's what do we do? Like, what you know, with, with your research and the work you're doing down there at Deakin, I mean, what sort of information are you sort of, um, I guess, gathering from parents and families in terms of, I, I suppose, successful interventional strategies that we can use so that you know, when Jen and I are fighting our kids off and you know they're trying to get to those tablets and we're in the middle, you know, what, I mean, what works? Because as you say, it's it's a war zone there yeah. some of the time. Absolutely. So parents can absolutely make a difference. So I think, first of all, have a, have a breather, recognise that our childhood was very different to what the kids are doing now, but you can absolutely have a, make a difference. So first of all, be conscious of your own screen time. That's the first thing, mm-hmm. because how long you're in front of a screen with your child present, that's what they're seeing as normal. That's what they're saying is you're allowing within the household so definitely make sure you check that check what the child's engaged in in terms of ratings as well we know a lot of younger kids Mm. that are engaging in games and activities that are rated much much 
higher and older than they should. In terms of practical strategies, no screens in the bedroom. So kids that have got a TV in their bedrooms watch two hours more a week um, and they've got far less sleep quality when you've got a screen and a phone underneath their pillows. So have them all charged in a central location overnight, but that also means that's for the parents as well. So my eldest is a handful of years off having her first device, I'm sure. And so now I'm in the stage where I'm like, I can't have my phone as my alarm anymore because she's going to turn around and say, well, you do that, mum. So I'm not sure that I'm going to win that war with my teenager to get his screen out of the bedroom. I mean, that's... It's tough, That's isn't tough. it? Yeah, yeah. And so it's very much start from a young age where you can right. because yep. it's easier and touching on what we said before, it's easier not to have given it to them than to take it away. Yeah. So the ship has sailed, Dr Shane, for us with teenagers. <laughs> the issue for me with that one is that my kids grew up always listening to audiobooks to fall asleep mm. from a very young yeah. age and, you know, they have incredible vocabulary as a result. But now for me to say, no, that one wonderful thing that I've given mm. you since yeah. you were a toddler to help you sleep, now you can't have any more. So, you know, my, my son who has a phone, he's not allowed to have his phone in his room, but an old iPad that has all the screen limitations so he can't do anything but listen to a story, but he still has it in his room. So he can listen to a story to sleep with. And so, oh, I don't know, it's just it's complex. It's, it's tough. I mean, the other thing I wonder sometimes too is, because I, I worry a lot about eyesight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is one of the things that really bothers me. Mm. And, and I remember, and this is probably a, a fictitious comment, but there was a professor of astrophysics that I uh, admire greatly that once upon a time, you know, she was very short-sighted and she said to me, you know, Shane, this is what happens if you sit in front of a computer for your whole <laughs> life. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm not doing that then. I'm going to do optics over here in a different lab. Um, you know, went into a dark lab of lasers, which I'm sure was better for me um but but this idea when you're looking when you look at something close the muscles in your eye around the lens are doing work whereas if you look at something far away your eye is relaxed in a relaxed state are we seeing sort of the impact of that as well because this seems to be this to me would be a pretty big health issue if everyone's eyes are being strained constantly all day long they are yes so it's not my specific focus of research but there is evidence to show that more screen time it's associated with poor eyesight because there's obviously the strain from watching the screen in a close proximity, but you're not having that transition from looking at something close mm-hmm. to something far yep. away and training your eyes to um, adjust. Yep. So there's definitely that concern, and that's been exacerbated through COVID as well. So there is yeah. definitely studies to show that um, that's got worse over the last couple of years for kids. I- uh, now that we're well and truly out of the lockdowns, I think it's fair to say we will not, it's very unlikely we'll have them again. I mean, they were there specifically to get vaccination levels up in a way that was meaningful. Um, are you seeing improvements? Like, are we are we coming out of this valley? Not as great as we'd want yeah, to, unfortunately, yeah. because it has stuck and... There are benefits to the screen. So we were talking earlier about it. It does allow that connection socially. It did allow continuation of um, extracurricular activities. So kids were doing karate lessons or dancing lessons online. And so in some situations that is being maintained. But again, we need to have that lens on. It's not all bad. But what we need to do, make sure now, is that we're not having that reliance for education when we don't need to. We're not having the reliance to connect socially online when we don't need to. So as much Mm. as possible, where parents can promote face-to-face interaction, absolutely, um, that's encouraged. And, you know, reduce requirement for screens for homework because we know that when schools have homework tasks that are done online, kids are more likely to be computer users in their free time. They don't finish it, turn off and move away. Which is fair enough. Well, uh, Dr Lauren Arundel, thanks so much for coming in today. Good luck with the ongoing work down there at Deakin University. It's an important topic that we love hearing about. Thanks for having me.
Dr. Jen. Uh, Oof, what an amazing. We were, we were going to do news, but uh, you know they were more interesting than us, so we Absolutely. just decided to uh, forego that until next week. And yeah, what was there really? Ah, oh, a couple of Nobel prizes, nothing much. <laughs> <laughs> Nobel prizes—they're things of the past. They only give them out to three people. Absolutely. Teams in science these years. The Nobel committee, if you're listening, and I know they do. Adjust your prize scheme so that you can give out Nobels to large teams. Yes, please. And also, can we have a few more women and a few more, you know, a bit, bit more diversity in other regards too? That's a whole other show. <laughs> it is. It Let's is. do it. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Jen. Good having you in the studio Wonderful as always. Folks, we're going to hand over in a moment to the team from Edith. I know uh, Cam is over there looking very excited in the next studio. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. And a big thank you to everyone who subscribed to the station over the last uh, month or so. Uh, we very much appreciate that. It is super helpful. Of course, people can still subscribe if they want to. But um, our so the Radiothon period is at an end. Um, but your love and support is greatly appreciated. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will chat to you again next Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.